sports are really important vehicles for relationships. We have purpose. We have a why. We bring people together. We connect. I feel like God is our greatest supporter and our greatest coach. Welcome to Rabbi on the Sidelines. This is Rabbi Eris Sherman from Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, where we speak about the intersection of sports and faith. This week, we are joined by the up-and-coming Noah Eagle, the voice for the Los Angeles Clippers, a recent graduate of Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Communications. Noah, it's so great to have you. Thanks for joining. Rabbi Sherman, this is a pleasure. I know that we had talked about this quite quite some time ago, but I got to say the production on that intro, just a different level, just, just elite stuff, which I, I expect nothing less from somebody with Syracuse roots like yourself. So it makes total sense to me, but I need to make sure everybody else knows that intro was pristine. It was impactful. It moved me. So I'm ready to go. I'm ready to run through a wall. Let's do it. We're going to give a shout out to actually Ariana Berlin, who uh, was a producer of that, who uh, uh, UCLA, um, really national champion gymnast, who actually was on our show, a good friend of our synagogue as well. So uh, shout out to Ariana Berlin. Tremendous um, Growing up in Syracuse, um, not a Syracuse grab, but growing up literally down the street from Newhouse, um, driving by that building with the legends, literally the legends, Marv Albert, your dad, Ian Eagle, Marty Glickman, who we'll talk about a little later, Bob Costas, Sean McDonough, so many. Why do you want to go there besides my dad went there? <laughs> I, I, honestly, Rabbi Sherman, I didn't want to go there when I first started looking at schools. I... I think that there was something about both my parents have gone there and me deciding I want to create something for myself and thinking, hey, if I go and just do the new house thing, then it's going to always be that Zion son. So when I was first looking at schools, we went to Syracuse as our first stop during my spring break of my junior year in high school. Got the full tour, got the full experience. It was a beautiful day. Got to see WAER, the radio. Those, by the way, when you get a beautiful day in Syracuse, it you was, are in. <laughs> it, it was it was the first nice day. It, you know the first nice day of any year where everybody yeah. is out in shorts and 54-degree weather, and you're thinking, why would you do this? Well, I realized why eventually when I actually was there every day and had to deal with snow essentially eight, nine months a year, but – at that point, I was just a naive kid from New Jersey. I said, this isn't that normal. You know, 50-something, I'm still wearing pants. But there were smiles on everybody's faces. You saw people walking from the quad all the way to Erie Boulevard, essentially. It was <laughs> ridiculous stuff. It was probably just sunshine, no clouds, all of it. So, I, in theory, it should have been a perfect visit. But I left there, and I remember my mom turned to me about five minutes into the ride home in the car and said, well, what'd you think? And I, I thought about it for a second. I said, I don't think I can go here. She said, really? I was like, yeah, I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel it. She goes, okay. So we decided to visit some other schools, went to Maryland, went to Miami, went to uh, some schools in California, ironically enough in LA. And then we went back to Syracuse a second time and after seeing everybody else's opportunities, facilities for what I wanted to do and going back to Syracuse and seeing more of the facilities, seeing that they had just finished the Dick Clark studio, seeing some of the other activities that I could do. And the other part was my mom, who also went to school there, said, let me give you my personal tour of my favorite mm -hmm. spots. And that was 
more of the sealer to the point that we were driving home saying deal 15 minutes. She turned to me and said, what do you think this time? And I said, I think I need to apply early decision. I did. And it was the best choice I made, but it wasn't a lock. Like I think a lot of people expected. What were the top three spots for your mom at Syracuse university? Got to hear that. <laughs> Varsity is going to be going to yes. be high up on anyone's list. And so she, she really took me in there and showed me there. We, we went around and we actually, it wasn't even a top spot for her at the time because it wasn't there yet. But Destiny USA Mall was somewhere <laughs> she said, all right, I heard about this place. Let's go see it. And we were so blown away and impressed by it. Number three, it, Pronto Joey's doesn't, it's not there anymore. That was uh, for both my parents, I would say, a very high spot for them. That's a spot where they, they have countless core memories. So in terms of her memories and her spots there, but she took me pretty much everywhere took me to the mount which is where they lived near lind we we really got to see the stairs and she said here's how i went to the dome this is the 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 path i took this is how i walked with my friends so it was a lot of that type of stuff of her actual collegiate experience versus hey here's the arts and science buildings that you're going to go to that wasn't that that really wasn't what i was worried about all too much which is either really good or really bad depending on who you ask and that would be the JMA wireless dome, if I'm correct, right? <laughs> sorry, sorry, the JMA wireless dome. I don't think I'm ever going to get used to that. I don't know about you, but no. the carrier dome is is drilled into my brain. So it's going to take Absolutely. years before I really – it's before second nature. So actually, but uh, to get through rabbinical school for a couple extra dollars here and there, I actually worked at Coach Beheim's basketball camp and nice. uh, going through the windy doors in gate A. I'm not sure if you've done that or just the oh, press. I'm well aware. Absolutely. So I became a rabbi. My dad's a rabbi, but I had to convince myself that it wasn't because of my father. I've read and seen a lot of your stories that perhaps it's about the same, right? Not I and Eagle's kids going to be the same one, but I'm going to be Noah Eagle. How do you become Noah Eagle? Uh, Apparently, I think you eat a lot of you know, cheese, egg sandwiches. I, that's, that's the way I did it. I don't know. I, I go to the gym. I work on myself. No, I, I think that honestly it's, it's the balancing act between the two. You know, a lot of people expect that I would say, I don't want to be anything like him. I want to just be completely me. I don't, I don't look at it that way at all. You know, I had a very good relationship with my dad growing up and got to see him enjoy himself every day when he woke up and be excited for work. And I think that's enticing and that's hypnotizing in many ways. When you get to see a father do something that he thoroughly and genuinely enjoys. And so once I got to a certain age, I realized, okay, I've got a lot of similar qualities to him. I've got a similar look to him. I've got a similar sound in many ways. He's done it very successfully. Let me find my own path along the same line. So it wasn't me saying, I want to do the same thing, but I want to be nothing like him. It was me saying, of course, I want to be like him. He's been incredibly successful. He is highly respected. It's everything like that. But at the same time, to carve my own path along the way, to do it in a slightly different way or to, to just do it where I'm enjoying it every day and, and maybe do different things than him. I, it, it's still to be determined because it's still so early in the process, so, so early in the journey, mm-hmm. but I do. I would say that it was never me looking at it and saying, okay, I know I can do this because he did this, but I'm going to do it right. in a completely different manner. It's me saying, I know I'm going to sound similar. I know I'm going to look similar. I know I'm going to act similar. 
and that's not a bad thing at all. It was that was something that took a couple of years for me to really come to terms with. As I had mentioned, I think I was running from that shadow initially, even just with the college process. And then once I got there, it took a couple of years for me to really embrace the name. But mm-hmm. once I did embrace the name, everything fell into place a lot better. And and I realized that the only people that care are people that I don't care necessarily as much about. I don't value mm-hmm. their opinion to the same way I value my loved one, my friends, and my family. Those are the people I care about or the people I respect that I work with. I don't necessarily, not to say I don't care about the people, I very much care about the people. But if your opinion is of me and, and, and you're not someone that's in my life every day, then I wasn't going to worry about it as much. And so that's something that I think I've really grown with over the years. And it certainly has helped me, not just as a broadcaster, but as a person, certainly as I've gotten into my adult life as well. Well, you're literally living out the Jewish tradition of Lador Vador from generation to generation. That's not only you. Actually, one of my first guests on the show was Dan Schulman. And he said, when my son Ben oh. went to Syracuse, Noah Eagle, uh, you know, uh, toured him around. And so I-, I love the now generational impact that's happening at the Newhouse School. And that you see, I remember uh, it was Syracuse Drexel when Dan and uh, Ben did the game together. And then you and your dad doing a couple games together. That's got to be a special moment that nobody else can understand besides you. It's incredible. And by the way, Rabbi Sherman, I uh, I think I had a hundred percent success rate when I showed somebody around the school that they went. I feel feel good about my touring skills. I could have maybe done that on the side if I really wanted to just spend some extra time that I didn't have. But I felt good about it. Just just an aside. Just want to make sure everyone knows. But it was those are the games that we've gotten to do together are a different level. Mm-hmm. You just mm-hmm. I don't think. Basically, the first one we did was Syracuse at Miami, my junior in college. And we thought that would be potentially the only time in our lives we would have a chance to do it because you never know how things shake out or where I end up or what I'm doing, what he's doing. You just never know if that ever lines up properly. And so once we heard he had the game, Mm -hmm. I had to do some finagling, and I'm very thankful to our sports director my junior year, who was a year ahead of me. His name's Sean Salisbury, good friend of mine. And I'm also very thankful to a friend of mine, Jake Marsh, who decided that, hey, I understand. I'm going to step aside because Jake was essentially supposed to be on that oh, game. Got it. Mm-hmm. I go to Sean and say, look, I no pressure. If it works out. But. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but right. But this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, potentially, yeah. that I could do a game that my dad's doing. This is something that, I would say we've dreamed of in many ways ever since I decided this is what I wanted to do. And so if it's possible, it would be, we would owe you a lifetime of whatever. And so he said, well, let me ask the the guys on the game because both of them were from Florida originally. It was in Mm -hmm. Miami. And so Jake Marsh was gracious, incredibly gracious to say, Hey, I get it. This is different. This is a totally unique experience. You can take it. No problem. And so I'll be forever grateful to him as well for that. But that game, that moment, it was big in so many ways because we had an an interview clip that went viral. It was really one of the first things I did that many people saw outside the Syracuse or my New Jersey community. It was a national type thing, which was huge for me. And it was just fun. I think people don't realize about that. They say, well, that must have been planned weeks in advance. No, no, Mm -hmm. I, I showed up to the arena as a junior in college, as a 21-year-old, I show up and they say, hey, uh, you're going to go interview your dad. I was like, oh, great. When? Wow. Go, right now. 
was like, oh, okay. sat down and said, how long? They go, oh, whatever you want. I'm like, well, what do you want me to ask? I said, whatever you want and wow. go. And then, then we were off. And that was, and it went perfectly because it was literally just what we do every day, which is just uh-huh. poke fun at each other, talk, etc. And so it was perfect. So that was amazing. The fact he was doing it with Bill Raftery, who was basically the guy who, Helped him grow as a broadcaster when he was now my age. It's just. But only man to man, right? Man to man. Not man to man. I can't do. Listen, I can't do the zone defense. (laughs) I can't do the impression quite like my dad after spending just decades with the guy. He is perfected. I would say if if I've been around him more, maybe, but I was just, it was too young. I was too young to do it. But it was all the pieces fell into place. And so the fact that we got to then do it in Miami. We've gotten to do it now a couple times at the NBA level. Mm-hmm. And we had some playoff games that we did together as well. It, it was just – it will never not feel special. It really so, will. Uh, like here's a clip of – Work Day. It's amazing. Oh, there you go. So uh, this is Bring Your Dad to Work Day, Noah Eagle, Ian Eagle, and this is it. A strange aging app that Chauncey is in the middle of. <laughs> Young to old. Right. Is it Bring Your Father to Work Day? What's happening here tonight? Yeah. But as tempting as it is to compare Noah to his dad, that is not where this story is going. Because Noah Eagle is his own man. And well on his way to becoming TV's next big name out of Syracuse University's Newhouse School. I didn't expect it to be this soon. I didn't expect this ride to be as awesome as it has been. He credits some, anyway, of his rapid development to a man we are all too familiar with. The very best education any sports reporter, any sports broadcaster can get is being in a press conference with Jim Beheim. It just is. If somebody doesn't like it, they're going to have to get another coach in here. I love that, man. He was a guest on our show. I grew up with watching him and observing him, and not just behind the press table, but actually in the community and the good that he did and the good that he continues to do. Why is Jim Beheim the best professor in this business? <laughs> well, first of all, huge credit to my my pandemic haircuts that never happened <laughs> in those videos. It was a it was a struggle for all of us. But Jim Beheim, I just saw him actually in Las Vegas a couple of days ago for the first Jimmy time. Buddy. They're both in there. Cole playing very well for the Lakers, and I saw Jim and Julie Beheim for the first time since I graduated, which was just awesome to to catch up and see them and and really have a full conversation just because I, I haven't been able to get back to Syracuse after moving across the country and working in the NBA and having our schedule shift and then COVID. So seeing them was amazing. But to answer your, your question, the reason that he's so great at molding without even trying to molding these young broadcasters or helping in their development is because he demands the best from you yes. all the time. If you don't come prepared with a legitimate question, not just a fluff thing, not no, no, a legitimate question, then don't ask one. And I think that's the lesson that I learned of you don't have to always ask a question just for the sake of being heard. You don't always have to make a comment just for the sake of being heard. You can go and you can observe. You can go and you can take it all in. And that has been great for me now with the Clippers of, hey, I'm in these practices, these shoot-arounds and press conferences. Everybody feels like they have to ask a question. And a lot of times it's just better for me to listen to 
the coach's answer, the player's answer, because sometimes someone might have a question that's legitimate. And my question would have been like, who's starting today? No one, we're going to find that out eventually. And so I always go back of, okay, if I asked this, would Jim Beheim react well yes. or poorly? And if it's always well, then I know it's a good question. So yeah. it's just, it's a, it's another reminder of check yourself, make sure you're ready and make sure it's something legitimate, not just a fluff piece because you're going to get that somewhere, some way, somehow. So worry about something that you can't get any other way. That's actually a beautiful uh, piece of rabbinic advice as well, right? It's not about the, my my rabbi, Rabbi David Wolpe, who I work with, uh, is the master of the pause, right? Because mm -hmm. you're always waiting. You know when that voice speaks, the words are going to matter. And it's not just words for the sake of words. He often says, if you can't say it in 200 words or less, it's not worth saying at all which I, I think like is a, so, so crucial, so crucial. Um, so you study under Coach Beheim, you study under your dad, you study under all these people, but then most people take a path that's gradual. If you're in baseball, you're going to the minor leagues. If you're in the rabbi's world, you're going to be an assistant rabbi, and then you're going to get a head position. But you don't exactly do that, and here's your journey from uh, Newhouse to the Clippers. What does it take to go from here? I'm No Eagle. Welcome to this web edition of Q's Countdown. To here. And I also like the addition of, of a true point guard in that second unit. It's been a dream come true. This is exactly what I had visioned when I first stepped on campus in central New York. Determination, dedication, and persistence. All of the above can help you land a job in television. But when it really comes down to it, how badly do you want it? That's the question Noah Eagle posed to himself. Well, something my dad has always told me from day one of me trying to get into this business is never be satisfied with where you are. The day you're satisfied is the day you're finished. To me, that's a lesson of faith. The day you're satisfied is the day that you're finished. How do you know, though, that, for instance, if you meet challenges, that you still have the opportunity to be satisfied? That's a great question. And by the way, that video just keeps on crushing me because you, you see me a lot of times with Chauncey Billups who would show up in those those fitted tailor suits and I was showing up with a 22-year-old kid and stuff from Nordstrom Rack. Although it's funny because a lot of the – we would go and a lot of the stage managers and people who were working, were, were gonna, <laughs> they would go, wow, that kid has really nice suits. And Chauncey's sitting there and he's like, what? I'm wearing designer. What's going on here? But that was a, that's a good memory. I think that in terms of never being satisfied, it applies to literally all walks of life to me. And this is definitely all walks of professional life. If you want to be a great basketball player, you have to continuously get better. You can never get stagnant because once you do, everyone's going to catch up to. If you want to be a great pianist, you have to can just – Constantly find other ways to explore that talent, explore that art. If you want to be a great anything, it all comes down to your willingness to improve and get better. So for me, in terms of broadcasting, I look at it this way. Every year, and this is something my dad has done that I think is one of the best things he's done. Every year, I'm trying to do something I didn't do the year before. I want to try something new. And so those challenges will come as a result just naturally of not having been in that position before the best way to attack it is just head on figure out it all starts with preparation and work always. Mm -hmm. So if you are prepared for any situation, you know, you are going to be able to deliver in at least any way, shape or form 
at least to a degree where it's going to sound like you know what you're talking about, you know what you're doing. So preparation is paramount. But the second part of it is a constant reminder in your head, just no matter what happens of, I belong, I belong, I belong. Say it to yourself in the mirror, say it to yourself Mm -hmm. when you wake up, make it your alarm when you wake up, I don't care. But if you keep reminding yourself, it'll all work, it it all falls into place. The more Mm -hmm. that you actually believe it, that that, that goes back to faith in general. If you believe anything strong enough, if you have that strength of belief, it is going to eventually find its way to you. I always have lived that way. So I think that's important. And the third part, most important part about any challenge or any situation is always going to come back to treating everybody that's involved the right way. Because mm-hmm. if you treat everybody else the right way, generally, one, people will do the same to you. Not always, but for the most part. And two, people will say, I loved working with that guy. Let's let's get right. him back. Let's get, and that's – everyone always thinks that I've learned more from my dad on broadcasting. I've learned how to craft the perfect broadcast or call the perfect game or host or whatever it might be, all these roles. I tell them that the best thing I've learned from him, my work ethic and treating people well. He Mm -hmm. remembers everybody's name. He knows, oh, you have two kids. How are your two kids? He knows, oh, you just got married last June. How's it going so far? Specific details about people. Uh, It doesn't matter if they're his broadcast partner, if they're a cameraman, camerawoman, if they're a runner, if he met them one time at a bagel shop. It's just how he was operating, how he was brought up. And so that, I, I I would credit his success with that as much as his actual talent, which is very apparent. And so I've always lived by that of challenge. Doesn't matter if I'm treating everybody the right way, they're still going to yes. look at me and say, I enjoyed being around them. So it's it's a, it's a culmination. It's an amalgam of, of factors, but those are the three most important ones. So when you talk about preparation, right? In college, okay, there's... 20 games and postseason, like, but 82 games to prepare. Is that a daily grind or are you looking at the umbrella picture? And I also want to ask about stories. Uh, tonight I'm actually uh, interviewing Mitch Album for his new book, Stranger oh, in a nice. Lifeboat. And uh, he is an author, an amazing author about faith. He's also an unbelievable sports uh, journalist and he's a podcaster. He, he's basically everything. But when I, when somebody asked him, well, like, how are you in these three worlds? He said, I'm simply a storyteller. How does storytelling go into your preparation for an 82 game season? When if I turn you on and I watch you all the time, it's not the same story every time about these 12 players that you're just constantly saying. That's it's one of the toughest, but most rewarding. Jobs. I entered with the Clippers. One of my main goals, as I told them, and it still is today. I want to humanize the players. I want to show people that they're more than just what you see on the court. They're not robots. They're people. They've got personalities. They have interests outside of their sport. They do things that all of us do. They're just like us when it's all said and done. I think that's the most important part. When you're working in any field that involves celebrities, Mm -hmm. is reminding people like, hey, they have so many similarities to us. That's why you should be watching them. Obviously, the talent and if you're an athlete, just sheer strength or size or everything they can do on on the court, on the field, it's mesmerizing. That's why we love sports at the end of the day, because we're mesmerized and we can't do it. 
but we also should love sports because the stories that a lot of these guys have right. are just as captivating. And so you, you need to make sure that you can't constantly use the same stories because to your point, if people are, are tuning in all the time, they're going to consistently hear this. Say, I've heard this before. Turn it off. So you need to find other ways to weave things in. Stories always pop up over the course of a season. You said 82 games. It's a long time. It's several months. It's basically half the year minimum. And so over the course of all that time, you you accumulate these stories. There, there are things that happen. I remember one time this year, we had a huge comeback. And it was a 35-point comeback in, in D.C. And the starters for the Clippers had just played so poorly that game that our head coach, Teron Lou, decides to start the second half with an entire bench unit and says the starters aren't playing at all, which is something he's willing to do. He's willing to test those boundaries. Well, the bench unit comes all the way back. It's the second largest comeback in NBA history on the road in Washington, D.C. And I remember on the bus afterward, our, our other announcer, Brian Seaman, is clapping as everybody gets on the bus. And our coach, Teron Lou, gets on. He's clapping. He goes, man, don't clap for me. Clap for the guys that got it done. And he goes, but don't clap for the starters. Do not clap for the starters whatsoever. He was adamant about it. So our starting center of each Zubots gets on. He's still clapping. And he goes, what did I say? Don't clap for Zoo. Do not clap for Zoo. And Avica Zubats, who is Croatian, who has learned English very, very well in the years he's been here, deadpan, great sense of humor, just goes, why not? I'm part of the history, too. If it wasn't for me, there'd be no history. And so that type of stuff happens consistently when you're on the road and, and over the course of a season. And so to tell that story and show, oh, he's got a great sense of humor like that, mm-hmm. that is perfect. That's exactly what you want. But storytelling, they say it at Newhouse all the time, that is the pinnacle, that is the cornerstone of any good broadcaster. If you're not a great storyteller, then you, you're going to struggle to find that that eventual path of whatever you want to get to because that is the most important aspect of anybody who does anything in any of these professions. Absolutely. Sermon writing the same thing. And we have a uh, one of the great storytellers out there watching, Alan Springer, saying uh, – Two of the best. best in our industry is coming together, the rabbinic and the faith uh, faith and sports world as well. Shout out to Alan Springer. Um, so when you tell those stories, though, who is your who is your audience? Is it the Clipper audience? Is it that national audience? And how do you build trust with the players so they know that not only you're telling the story accurately and factually correct, but you're telling it in a way that really can make a difference off the air? That I, for instance, when I hear you, that's Shabbat morning. I stand up on my pulpit and I say, I heard this story that I need to tell you. Mm. Good question. So I'll answer the first one first. The audience is always changing to certain degrees, but at the same time, it remains the same. So I never expect that when I'm doing a Clipper game, it's only Clipper fans listening, especially now because it's so accessible, not mm-hmm. just across the country, across the world. I've had... I've had messages come in from Australia and from Europe and from all other places around the globe of people saying, hey, I'm a big Clipper fan here in blank, and I really appreciate what you do because I get to listen to the games while I'm at work. You just mm-hmm. you just never know, my point is, who's listening. So, sure, I want to cater to the Clipper fans when I'm doing a Clipper broadcast specific, and then when I'm doing a national broadcast, you got to be able to cater to everybody. You make sure – that you're catering 
know you mentioned Marty Pittman. That's that's this is the quote that's been passed down generation to generation of consider the listener, or if it's TV, the viewer. But his was at the time radio. He said, consider the listener. That's what everything should be. It's this you should be framing everything with the scope of what does the listener need right now. And for radio, that is constantly about time and score and the specifics of the game. When I'm telling stories, it's okay. Why does the listener care about this? If mm-hmm. it's a story that the listener doesn't care and it's just me telling it for the sake of saying, hey, guess what? I talked to this player. How cool is that? That's not, I'm not doing my job then. And I think the players over time, they realize that. They understand, oh, this guy's here to help us. Or he's mm-hmm. a good guy. He's around the team. Oh, the coaches trust him. Okay, we can trust him. And that was the best thing for me my first year was I looked at it as, all right, I'm a 22-year-old kid. I'm going to go in there. I'm not going to. I'm not going to rock the boat necessarily. I just want to go in there. I'll earn the trust over time. And that's what happened because the craziest part was, you know, a lot of times now in the NBA, these, these kids come in and they're 19 years old, 20 years old. So I was like, all right, I shouldn't be the, the youngest one there. I was the youngest one there. <laughs> we had an <laughs> older team. So I was literally the rookie. And uh-huh. it wasn't as if I could go and connect with a whole lot of guys. There were some guys that were basically my age. And right. so that was the closest I had. Uh, Terrence Mann, Avicii Zubat, Samir Coffee are all around my age. So that was at least fairly easy at the point. It was easy to go up and talk to them. Terrence was a Florida State guy, Syracuse, ACC. Mm-hmm. We had Fiondo Capangeli, same deal. So we had a couple guys like that. But Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are established superstars. Patrick Beverly had been in the league for a long time. Lou Williams was the, the all-time leading scorer off the bench. Montrez Harrell. These guys were veterans. They had been around. So I didn't want to just go up and completely mess up anything as a first-year guy at 22. I let it happen over time. And so one thing that was helpful was Doc Rivers at our at the time was our coach. We had Teron Lewis, an assistant coach, and Sam Cassell, and a long list of just a fantastic coaching staff. I was making friends with each one of them. And then once Doc was comfortable with me, now all players could see that and say, okay, he's cool. And now I can go up and approach them no problem. So I, I I think that the order of operation was important for me personally, and everybody's different in how they approach it, and, and there's no right answer about it. But the order of operations was important for me. And then understanding, hey, this is the right time to go up. This is not. Mm-hmm. This is the right time to talk about this. This is not. Understanding your timing is always paramount, no matter who you're talking to or what area of life we're talking about. Timing is is just always the most important factor when having conversations with people. So understanding that timing was huge for me as well. So let's hear one of those calls from Paul George uh, when he had a crazy monster dunk and your dad's reaction to this. George keeps his head high as he moves it left to right. George crossover drive middle to the lane. George all the way inside. He slams with two. Kevin in a foul. Might as well call this man the notorious team. He's got puns. I gotta tell you, I want to work with Noah. I mean, the notorious PG. Does that come out of nowhere, or is that part of the preparation? No, that one kind of came out of nowhere. I, I I think I had maybe considered it at one point, but I never used it. I was waiting for a big moment, waiting for a playoff game or something. But it wasn't something that I said. All right, if he does it this game, I'm gonna do it. But it was funny. I had talked to my dad after that when he goes. Man, I should have used that. <laughs> we've had a couple of those, I'd say, already where we've been on the same game or we've uh, he's maybe done a game of a team and I had already done something. And 
There was one this year. He did the the Nets Grizzlies game as the Nets broadcaster, and he just had a, a bunch of Desmond Bain, Bain Batman references, which I had been saving for when we were going to play them next. I had done all the Jaw references for Jaw Rule and Jaw nice. Rules. I did, you know, he's always on time, hypnotize, whatever. So I I just I had everything for Jaw Rule. And then he everything out for Bane. And I'm like, man, now I can't use Bane puns, Bane references I wanted to use. So it's both uh, we share and we also compete in slight ways. But that was the one he was like, that was pretty good. I, I could have used that. So <laughs> it, always, it is always funny. But that was more spur of the moment. And everyone asked me about his call this year for the John Morant dunk, the jawbreaker. Basically the same thing. You know, spur of the moment. You got you to make sure that the moment matches the call, which he's done. Right. T over the course of his career. It's the best thing I feel like I can take from him in terms of his on-air performances. How does he meet the moment? Because he does it as well as anybody. So not only have you learned from legends, but you actually replaced a legend. In the baseball mm. world, replacing Vince Scully, not easy. In the basketball world, maybe college basketball world, one day replacing Dick Vitale, etc. Not easy. Um, in any world, doctor, religion, if you have a Hall of Famer up there, it's hard to replace them. And not only do you replace them, but like you said, you were a rookie. And that person you replaced was Ralph Lawler, Lawler's Law. I always loved how he never had the headset. Always the, just the microphone in front of him. And this is the, exactly. And this is the speech that uh, he gave in the Hall of Fame. And we'll talk a little about Ralph Lawler. George Yardley and Dolph Shays and Bob Pettit and Sweetwater Clifton and uh, all the great players of the day. And I guess I saw every great player this league has ever offered since the league began in 1946. And further, it was not just a joy, but I realize now an inspiration to hear the great legendary Marty Glickman call those games. Never could I dream uh, that, that someday I'd be so blessed to be a part of this great sport and the great league of the National Basketball Association for all those years. So he mentions, first of all, Dolph Shays, who actually was my neighbor growing up. Had uh, many Passover seders with Dolph and Naomi Shays of blessed memory. Nice. Um, and also Marty Glickman, a Syracuse guy, but so much more than a broadcaster. You're probably familiar of his history in terms of the uh, Olympics and being a Jew and not being allowed to actually run in the 1939 uh, Olympics. Yeah. Um, what does Marty Glickman mean, not just to broadcasting, but to really American history. And here's Ralph Lawler saying he was so excited about him. And I know you've mentioned him. Tell me about Marty Glickman and that influence, even to this day as a young kid. Well, there's no new house as we know it today without Marty Glickman, plain and simple. I think that that's the first, for our purposes as people who are around it, certainly around it growing up. And then for me going there, that's the Olympic stuff is amazing and incredible to your point for history but that's the one of the, the things that i will know him as forever because if he doesn't go there marv albert doesn't go there mm -hmm. if marv albert doesn't go there bob costas doesn't go there if bob costas doesn't go there sean mcdonough doesn't go there if sean mcdonough mike Tarico, ian eagle adam shine and adam Catalan, <laughs> you just you just go yeah you can keep going from there it doesn't stop is my point it will continue to go on forever because he was the first domino. And ever, once that first domino fell, every other domino followed. And so in terms of broadcasting, he doesn't get the respect and the, the credit that he deserves. 
he is a legend of legends. This mm-hmm. is somebody who not just went to Newhouse and started this trend, but then mentored pretty much every one of those names I mentioned, including my dad, who has some legendary stories of mentoring sessions with Marty Glickman, going to his New York apartment and watching back one of the game calls he did, his first game call with the Nets. And Marty's like, what are you doing here, Ryan? And he's like, I'm trying not to throw up on myself, Marty. I don't know. <laughs> my first game, you know? So he is, he is just an absolute legend, gracious with his time. As mentioned, all of his lessons, or at least a lot of them, were passed down from generation to generation. Dan Duva, who was at Newhouse for years, had been teaching some classes there, has now been the voice of the Vegas Golden Knights for the last several years since the conception of that franchise. He is pretty Glickman super fan, had talked to him and, and was mentored by him towards the end of his life. And it just speaks glowingly. It's someone that I wish I had a chance to meet. I wish mm-hmm. I had a chance to pick his brain just because it would have been fascinating with everything. And then you can go back and talk about the Olympics and all of the extra yeah. stuff that go with mystique of Marty Glickman. But in terms of the broadcasting side, different level of legendary status. He, he has really had his hand in so many careers. So uh, a couple of direct faith questions that I have. I've talked to a lot of broadcasters, Jewish, Christian, of no faith, but of inspiration. And one of those is right behind me of unscripted Ernie Johnson, NBA and TNT, who we had just a lovely conversation. And he's pretty outright on his faith. And he brings those moments directly into broadcast, as you, as you said, when the timing is right. Um, are there any moments that you have within your faith world that intersect with your sports world? Or are they two separate worlds? As Dan Shulman told me, you know what? I'm I'm separate. Um, but when well, when he thought about it, he said, oh, actually. And he told me the moment of the Gulf War when he was just a minor league hockey broadcaster. And the Gulf War broke out and his parents called him. And he left the broadcast. And there was a sign that said, this broadcast is canceled because of events in the Middle East. He said he probably couldn't have done that on ESPN. But at that moment... Israel and his faith took a front seat to this hockey game in front of you, in front of him. Any moments yet that have come to your attention that you have intersected either on purpose or not? Yeah, I think that anytime there's a seminal moment in the world, that's that's where people generally run to is that faith mm-hmm. that they have, whatever it is. To your point, it can be Judaism, Christianity, Catholicism. You can be uh, practicing a uh, practicing Muslim. You can, whatever it is, you you generally will run to that, and, or or if you're just spiritual, whatever. So, especially when something tragic happens, that I feel mm-hmm. like is when it becomes at the mm-hmm. forefront of anybody. And so, my first year with the Clippers, we were in Orlando, and the Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. news comes through, and yes. that was a moment where I really saw everybody that it didn't matter what your background was, didn't matter what you believed in. Everybody just had the faith together, if that makes sense. Of, Absolutely. Hey, we're going to be okay. This is just incredibly sad, incredibly sudden, tragic news, but we're going we're gonna to do it together. We're going to get through it together. And I had to, at that time, post the pregame, postgame on TV along with doing the radio game that oh, day. Wow. And so we were the first game to tip off. We were on the air first of any team and it was still the toughest day of my career i don't think there will be a tougher day than that because the news had just come in a couple hours prior we scrapped the whole show 
Our entire show was dedicated to it. And I'm talking about just a terrible, terrible tragedy, terrible accident. And if it wasn't for my disbelief of, hey, there's a plan. There, this is all part of the plan. And we are going to get through that plan together as a group. I don't know if I would have gotten through that show. I don't know if I would have gotten mm-hmm. through that broadcast. I don't know if I would have gotten through that plane ride home when we're all at that point now really sharing the experience going from Orlando all the way back to Los Angeles, a long, long plane ride together. And the amount of people that knew him with our organization, the amount of people right. that played with him or that, that trained with him, you could really see that was a moment where I think a lot of people were reaching towards God to for, for mm-hmm. some answers at least. Yep. So that was a moment where I really felt like there was some level of intersectionality, but for the most part, there's a separation of the two yet at the same time, when I look at just faith in general, I feel like sports is another example of of just what religion does very well, which is bring people together of all walks yep. of life. And so there is a similarity between the two, and there there is a way to tie the two together. And that is something that I love about sports, and I think it's it's what people really fall in love with sports. It's one of the main reasons is this community, and you get the same thing when you're you're all under the same umbrella. Of, of looking towards God. So there is that intersectionality just naturally. Yeah, so I, speaking with a couple of NBA players, they actually told me that there is a chapel before every game, yeah. not mandatory, but one chapel for both teams, which I found really fascinating that obviously, you know, enemies on the court, but what, you know, what are they praying for? And uh, Dave Sims, a uh, good friend of our show as well, he uh, said, you know, but the left fielder is not praying to, you know, th- they're thanking God for the home run, but the left fielder hasn't thanked God that he dropped his, you know, dropped the, the pop fly. Um, so in terms of what are we thanking God for, I think is really a, a fascinating moment as well. And then the Supreme Court comes out with a ruling just the last couple of weeks that now you can go to midfield and pray with your players. Um, what's your thoughts in terms of bringing prayer or allowing prayer, right? Not mandatory, but allowing prayer onto the court, onto the field. And what do you see within your organization that either happens informally or not? Yeah, I think that you, you nailed it. The most important part is that it's it's not mandatory. You know, and that's it should never be mandatory because once it is, then it becomes an obligation versus something right. that you you should want to do. You know, something that you want from deep inside of you, that relationship with a higher power. Isn't that the whole point behind it? If it's an obligation for you, you're never going to have a true relationship. It's going mm-hmm. to be fake. It's going to be false. It's never going to feel genuine to you, which is the most important thing, at least from my belief system and where I, where I came up on how I was raised. So I think it's, I don't think any of it's a bad thing. I think that inclusion of that type of stuff can always be good. It can bring coaches and players together. It can bring to your point opposition and people playing against each other. It can bring Mm -hmm. them together. And I know a lot of players that feel like it's important. They have to do it. They, and I respect that. I love that about them. But at the same time, there are a lot of players that don't feel like they have to do it. So I just think that as long as it is optional, as long as it fits into what everybody else wants to do, I, there's no downside to it. I think it's great. I think it's an absolute perfect addition to sports. Uh, but I haven't seen anything yet in our organization, but I'll be curious as we keep going. You know, It, it also depends on the personalities you have on the team. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you might try to line up the personalities. So if you have a couple players that all feel very strongly about it, that generally will work out versus if you have some players that maybe don't feel as strongly about it, that could also also work out. So it's mm-hmm. that it's just that shared belief system, either yes or no. 
So I haven't seen anything yet with the team, but I'd be curious to watch as we add more players and we add more more people from different backgrounds and different faiths, how, how that does play out because it is it is an interesting part of sports. And again, it goes back to bringing a collective group together and seeing if you can get uh, a common goal achieved. And that's that's one of the best parts about sports. Can you achieve a common goal with a bunch of strangers, essentially, that become yes. brothers or sisters or family members over the course of your life? So I'm curious. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and actually, there's a couple of examples of that. Um, Ennis Kamcher is one who uh, speaks yep. on behalf of the Muslim community and, in fact, does clinics with the Jewish community to bring different faiths together. Um, and also Denny Avdiha for the Wizards um, on Israeli Memorial Day, in fact, uh, wrote on his shoes the words uh, Yiskor, meaning to remember. And so what is your thought of using, you know, literally the uniforms that the professional organization gives in order to bring awareness to larger issues because you have the platform? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the NBA bubble where they were putting a lot of of messages on the back of their uniforms as opposed to their last names or they would have them on the top, the last names on the bottom. I, I, I'm all for that. I'm all for getting messages across any way possible and spreading positive things. Let's put it that way. I think the yes. second it becomes any sort of hate speech or negativity, then of course I'm out. But if it's a positive message that you're trying to share with the greater masses and you have an opportunity to get that message across in a way in which it's not really impacting anybody. It's not going to affect the play. It's not, I'm all for that. I think that the writing on the shoes, the stuff on the uniforms, any of that can be used strategically, the court or the field. We've seen that as well for getting messages across. But there's a reason we have freedom of speech, but as mentioned, it just can't, it can't be anything that is going to hurt somebody else. It can't be mm-hmm. anything that, that, is is intended with hate is intended with negativity of i'm going after you or this group of people it has to be something to me that's uplifting and as long as that's the case i'm all for it absolutely so uh we're a national audience but on the local uh, local flavor what are we going to look forward to for our los angeles clippers sinai temple always brings a large crowd out there so we're looking forward to see you when we come back to crypto.com center last time we were there was staples um what can we look forward to for this year for the clippers it's gonna be a very exciting season that is a a promise no matter what it's definitely going to be intriguing (laughs) i'd say that this is a team that feels like they're ready to win a championship right now and a lot of people would agree they've got Kawhi leonard returning after missing all of last season with an injury he is one of the best players in the world plain and simple and when he is locked in he is impossible to stop Paul George, who is one of the best running mates in the NBA, one of the best number two options, essentially, in the league. They just signed John Wall, who's going to compete for the starting point guards, but with Reggie Jackson, two guys who have had tremendous, illustrious careers. We have re-signed guys like Nico Batum, who has been just an incredible addition. But if you want to talk about incredible people, that's someone who is just a genuine, amazing person. And we're filled with that. The, the entire team is filled with that. Terrence Mann, another example. Amir Coffey, another example. Avica Zubats. That, to me, is why this team is so special. And it's been so great to me is that they have built a squad full of just really good down-to-earth people that are, are willing to sacrifice for each other and the greater good of the team. And that's all you can ask for. And so on the court, they're going to be incredibly exciting. I know that you guys are going to be there, which will always be a nice boost for us. It's always great to see you in the building. And I think that we've got a chance to sell out a lot of these games. We've got a chance to win a lot of these games. 
and certainly have a chance to compete for a championship for the first time in franchise history. That's why anyone should be excited because this could be the year. The drought could be over. We'll see how it all plays out. And you heard it right here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. The drought could be over. And uh, we know that when that happens, the voice of the Clippers, Noah Eagle, will be front and center. And we will be listening and watching your journey as well. Uh, we send you blessings on that journey. And it's just such a great joy to join us here on Rabbi on the Sidelines. Noah Eagle, voice of Los Angeles Clippers, graduate of the Newhouse School of Communications of Syracuse University. And as we say here, a mensch, a good person. Noah, <laughs> thanks so much. Rabbi Sherman, I'm glad we got to do this finally, and we'll do it hopefully again at some point soon. But I'm looking forward to seeing you at the crypt, as many people call it, and uh, for a great season ahead. But again, appreciate you having me. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. 